All right, I would like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis as we continue in chapter 3, as we are introduced to what went wrong. We'll be picking up in verse 7, in the immediate aftermath of them having committed that first sin. Temptation was effective. They sinned. And this is what happened. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way 
to guard the way to the tree of life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. In this chapter, we see one of the bleakest episodes of scripture, probably and perhaps only second to the death of the Son of God. Lord, what we see here in these verses isn't just Adam and Eve's story. It's ours. We repeat their sin. We repeat their hubris every day. And, O oh Lord, with the rest of creation, we experience the frustration and futility and pain of living in a fallen world. But we praise you that you have pierced the darkness with a hope of the gospel. We praise you. We ask that you would be with us as we consider these words. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. In, Ephe in uh, Philippians chapter 2, we are told to have this mind which was in Christ. And the first thing it says about Jesus that we're to bear in mind and emulate is that he, though he exists in the form of God and is the very image of God, he is the second person of the Trinity. Nonetheless, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that word, that tense grasp, doesn't mean grasped at like it's not his and he's reaching for it. It's grasped in the sense of clung on to. That he has it, and above all else, he's not going to let go of it. He, being fully equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be clung to. But rather, he took the form of a servant. This is in stark contrast, isn't it, to the basic underlying attitude that animated Adam and Eve in the garden, as we saw last week. Above all else, what did they want? To be like God. Sadly, because of the dim light that temptation cast on the situation, they didn't see, they forgot that in the most important ways they already were like God, were they not? They were made in his image and in his likeness. They enjoyed unfettered, unrestrained access to God and the good life. Indeed, they were lords of creation. And the world that existed before them responded to their touch and to their inclinations almost as easily as to God himself in which he just merely had to speak. They had to work. But you have to understand 
that the world would gently and quickly and promptly obey. And so work was no drudgery. Work was not painful. Existence was not marked with futility. But notice, after its introduction in chapter 2, verse 9, in which we're told that there, in the midst of this beautiful garden, in the midst of this beautiful garden the Lord makes, he sets and establishes two different trees that are marked out by name. The one that we talk about in chapter 3 is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in chapter 2, verse 9, we're introduced to this tree called the tree of life. Notice how it is conspicuously absent from the time it's just mentioned in passing in chapter 2, verse 9, until we get to the end of chapter 3. It's missing. It's not in, even in the scope of reference. It's not even talked about. It's indicating to us that Adam and Eve themselves had not really regarded what that tree meant what that tree represented, what that tree gave them access to. You see, the tree of life, which pops up multiple times in Scripture, and incidentally, we're told in Revelation four times that it's there in the New Jerusalem. But the tree of life represents the blessed, abundant life that a God offers his friends. That's what we're told in, in Revelation multiple times. His friends get access to this tree. You see, God was not holding out the good life that the serpent was claiming. The good life, the blessed life, the abundant life. In perpetuity, forever, was what God offered them. And it's of so little regard that it didn't enter their thought at all. It's nowhere found here until it's too late. And so, temptation, with its powerful working, chiefly we saw last week that temptation seeks to undermine our confidence in the Word of God. And I don't just mean the Bible. When we say the Word of God in the broadest possible sense, we mean the very rules that God has instituted for reality, which is why sinfulness and folly go hand in hand. That there, the book of Proverbs attributes moral degeneration to fools who live contrary to the rules and principles God has established. So in its broadest form, temptation questions or calls into question the word of God in every capacity, which is why you still have people, despite all the evidence, despite all the visible fruit, run off and get addicted to drugs and stuff like that. Because it calls into question, it won't happen to me. I can have the promises without the pain. 
So it questions the word of God, but then it questions the character of God. Would a God who loves you hold out on you? Would a God who supposedly wants your best refrain from giving you the best? And so, even though the tree of life was right there, the tempter shrewdly cast their eyes and their gaze from it to make it appear as if God had held out. Sin, as it did with Adam and Eve, continues to do with us the course of over-promising and under-delivering. Yesterday, my kids had a friend over to the house, and this poor young soul had never seen Napoleon Dynamite. So we had to remedy that. And one of my favorite scenes is near the end, and it's where Pedro is giving his class president speech. And many of you have seen the movie, and if you haven't, you have a to-do list now. And in his, like, personality-less way, at the end of his speech, what is the great promise he gives to them? If you vote for me, what does he say? All of your wildest dreams will come true. Of course, it's absurd. Vote for me and all of your wildest dreams will come true. But is that not essentially the grandiose, ridiculous promise that sin makes us every time we do it? Every time it comes to us. Pick me and all your wildest dreams will come true. There won't be consequence. It doesn't matter that everyone before you has been destroyed and consumed by this course of action. Don't. That won't be you. It's like socialism or any number of things. It overpromises and underdelivers. Why? Because what are they promised? That they would be like God. Specifically, that they would have the good life, that they would be wise. That's, that's what the woman sees. It's, it's good for making her wise. It's, it's a means by which I will have more than I have now. And what happens? As soon as they eat and their eyes are opened, they're immediately embarrassed, uncomfortable, ashamed. They are immediately made self-conscious. And to be self-conscious is to be self-focused. And we see this in how everyone, both of them, seek to pass the buck when they are confronted by God. They are, they are seeking their self-preservation because it has all become about the self except 
Now, they're not even comfortable in their own skin. They are, instead of being naked and unashamed, they are naked and ashamed. They're embarrassed. And then, after having received judgment by the end of the day, can you, can, can you just imagine this picture? At the start of the day, the, the, the sun comes up and they're there and it's a beautiful another day in paradise. And by the end of the day, a man and his wife are clothed in some sort of animal skins and they're being driven out under the threat of death to work a ground that is now hostile to them in a relationship that will likewise prove frustrating. They've lost it all. All in a day. All because they listened to the wrong voice. And this is not just Adam and Eve's story. You see, they sought to have the abundant, blessed life apart from the means and the person of God. They sought to have heaven on earth, their best life now, apart from God. God offered it to them. All they had to do was, when, when the snake said, you'll be like God, if they would have went and walked over to the tree of life, it would have been theirs. But they did not, and so they plunged themselves and this world into an existence of futility, frustration, and pain. And it's not just their story, it's our story. We, we experience this every day, and we perpetuate it every day. When we seek to grasp at what cannot be grasped, when we seek to have the spiritual high life on our own terms, when we experience or seek to experience all of the blessings of God apart from the will and word of God. Our hubris, which we think will take us to the heavens, instead brings us low to the ground. And so man and his wife are confronted by the living God for their sin. And then when you see verse 9, the Lord called to them, where are you? It's possible to imagine many different tones of voice. But behind all of it, what you should hear is a summons. It's not so much a question, it's a statement. That's why it calls to the man. It sounds like a question, but he said to them. It's one of those times, every single one of us knows what I'm talking about, where the words that come out of your mouth are in the form of a question but you're making a statement. So his statement is, come here. He has summoned his creation and court is now in session. This is a foretaste of the great day of judgment. And he addresses them in the order of hierarchy and in the sense of how God created them to have dominion. First, he addresses the man, then he addresses the wife, 
Then lastly, he addresses the creature. And the man passes the buck. Indeed, he tries to blame God. And the the woman passes the buck. Now, the Lord does not even give the serpent a chance to speak. He's not interested in hearing what this tool of Satan has to say. He just passes judgment. And the judgment that the Lord renders is talionic in nature. It's retributive and it fits the crime and it fits their created status. And so he passes judgment in reverse order. It's kind of like starting left to right, man, woman, snake. Well, now I'm talking to you, so snake, woman, man. And he goes back down the line like that. And so to the snake, we're told that the shrewdest, most exalted creature is now going to live an existence of humiliation. And it's going to be an existence marked by enmity. And we know that he's not just talking about a snake. He's talking about the spiritual power behind the snake. And one of the things you have to wrestle with is we oftentimes see the spiritual conflict in the world between the righteous and the wicked. And it is the Lord who created the enmity between the righteous and the wicked. It's important to see that right here, that the enmity between the righteous and the wicked doesn't come from the devil. It comes from the Lord. And it's a reminder that at the end of the day, the devil who thinks he's just overrun this world, he will be completely and continually battered against until it's finally destroyed. And then he speaks to the woman, and the woman was created from man, presented back to the man to be his helper. And so her punishment now is going to focus on that relational domain. And so the key task that is uniquely hers of rearing and bearing children will now become one that is marked with pain and futility and frustration. Indeed, in her own relationship with her husband, the ESV does a little interpretation for you. When it says, your desire shall be against your husband, shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. What God is doing here is acknowledging now in a world that exists with sinful people who are self-absorbed. You guys have just done it to me. Casting the buck, placing the blame. You led the way, Eve, woman, you led the way, and so your desire as we have seen now, will perpetually be to lead the way. Unfortunately, a few mostly liberal theologians, exegetes, think that this means that the woman is going to be just pining and desirous, just wanting affection from her husband. And this is a a story of unrequited love. and, And no, Most responsible exegetes and commentators understand that 
Not only the words, but the, le- the, the grammatical form of this sentence is identical to 4, seven, chapter 4, verse 7, when God is addressing Cain. And he says, Cain, behold, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. And so what we're seeing now is a world in which there will be relational conflict. And what was intended to be a loving, gracious, generous relationship of differentiated complementarianism in which the husband as head of his wife would lovingly and gently lead her, it's now one in which it's marked by her desire to have control met by his desire to dominate and subjugate. The word here for rule is not the same word that's used in the New Testament when it talks about elders need to rule their house well. That word means manage. This word means dominate. And so that's what we have seen throughout human history is that there is continual, nonstop strife in which the wife uses her ways to try to either passive-aggressively or, or manipulatively get her way, and the man, unfortunately, throughout human history, dominates his wife. And so the very relationship that was meant to most picture the image of God and plurality has become a source of the frustration of living in a post-fall world. But then to the man, created from the ground, sent to work the ground, now the ground will resist him. Just as to the woman the man will resist her, so the ground will resist the man. And in frustrated painful toil will he eke out a meager existence all the days of his life until his demise and disintegration. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And he drives them out. That's a bleak picture, isn't it? And it's there in the midst of the darkest moment when all hope seems lost, that we nonetheless have a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope. You see, God has a plan. And even on this day, the plan was still going according to plan. And so to the serpent, He says that the seed of the woman would strike his head. In other words, one day a champion would come. And this champion would undo and destroy the seed of the serpent and its works. Indeed, that glimmer of light then sheds light on why it is that God doesn't just destroy them then, 
on why God promises. You know what? In pain, you will bring forth children. But guess what? You're going to bring forth children. By the sweat of your brow and by a painful existence, you will eat your food. But guess what? You're going to eat your food. And the Lord looks at their ridiculous attempt at self-clothing. And he knows it's insufficient. And so the first animal that's killed is killed by the Lord. Unless he just miracled a skin. And he made them clothing to cover. And from that moment, the picture is sent that we live by the death of something else. Which is the picture that ultimately comes to ultimate fruition in the death of Christ. You see, the, the hope that is presented to us here is that even as man is banished from the garden and from access to the tree of life, the blessed, abundant life, that the champion would come, the seed of the woman would come and undo that, which is why it is so significant when Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. He has come to destroy the serpent. He's come to destroy the works of the devil, which is why the gospel spends so much time covering that topic. And so, with his death, Jesus has struck the fatal blow. And when we celebrate this meal, we celebrate the fact that Jesus, the ultimate seed of the woman has come and we live in light not of a post-fall world but of a post-resurrection world where the power of the devil has been broken and Jesus reigns and so the futility that would mark life otherwise is gone replaced by the blazing hope of eternity that is bright and full and even now we get a foretaste of glory divine. What a wondrous thing. So in this passage, we see the fallout of the fall. That there are curses and consequences that are with us still. But in this passage, we also see the great pointer that points us to Christ. Let's pray.